Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. This podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. In recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of ancient Egypt through lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kinds of deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. We will be releasing some season one content that was filmed during the pandemic of 2020. I don't know why I did 2020. Maybe there's another one. Um, These were originally released on Kara's YouTube channel and Facebook. We have decided to release the audio from these videos as individual episodes but we wanted to provide some context as well. Hopefully this keeps everyone sated until the release of the new season at the end of the summer. But some questions first to contextualize these things. Um, What made you decide to start recording YouTube, Facebook videos during the pandemic? Were you (laughs) bored or? I was bored. I wasn't really bored. I was cut off from the world. And so I decided I needed to say some things and I needed to say some things in a way that wouldn't be misinterpreted because the, it was pandemic, lockdown, stay at home, stay healthy, George Floyd, yeah, and um, and environmental discussions. I mean, everything was just a mess, yep. and the apocalypse was nigh, is nigh. <laughs> and um, and when I would put things on my social media as text, they would very easily be misinterpreted. And I thought it would be a really good idea for me to say them into a camera to speak them aloud because it is much harder to take somebody down who is speaking their truth with passion, with emotion, with care, um, human to human. And so I started doing Facebook lives Mm -hmm. because I was able to reach the most people. And then I figured out how to put those on YouTube simultaneously um, so that they have an archive of sorts. And I couldn't believe it, but they ended up rather blowing up and getting thousands of likes, hundreds, if not in some cases, thousands of comments, and really starting discussions that people were hungry to have that linked the ancient world to the modern world, that linked identity as manufactured or created through antiquity to modern identities. Mm -hmm. Um, So we talked about racism, we talked about the colonialist racism of Egyptology, Um, And I say we, because while, yeah, I spent 10 to 20 minutes talking one-on-one or whatever into a camera like this in a Facebook Live, I I could see comments coming up. Sometimes I had to block that out and just be like, don't look at the comments because it was fast and furious, all of these comments coming all at once. And so, but sometimes I did interact with the comments. Mm -hmm. and, And then after the video posted, I always engaged with the discussion that took place, which was usually pretty hot. Yes. And um, and I found it a really interesting thing to be able to interact with my own mini lecture after a lecture mm-hmm. with thousands of people. That was that was crazy. And um, your next question is probably going to be why I stopped. But go on. That's okay. Well, I you... said, has your opinion changed on any of the topics? You know, what did you learn? From the process, maybe why why you stopped was that part of what you've learned? <laughs> um, the yeah, 
and I, and I don't know that I've actually stopped because here we are yeah. in my garage, We've... right? With the chairs and the whole thing. And we're doing podcasts and we have mascara on and everything. Yeah. Um, right. And you have eyeliner. Yes. I don't, I have eyeliner envy. Cause I look at her eyeliner. I'm like, oh, she has eyeliner. But, um, so in a way I'm like, oh, I need to do it in a way that protects me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, getting back to what I learned, I learned that there is an extraordinary hunger for discussion that people are noticing all kinds of changes coming fast and furious around them. And that historians and scholars of the ancient world have a very important place in in people's minds and hearts. They want to know what we have to say. I learned that people, some people treat me as a kind of witch prognosticator, that because I study the past and 3000 years of the past, I will somehow know what's happening in the future. When I say, dude, I don't know what's gonna happen in the future, there's like, I, not surprised. I mean, obviously people know that I'm not a soothsayer, but there there is a hunger for people to tell us what is going to happen because we all feel that we are at a tipping point. That well, it's he- the adage of, you know, if you don't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it. So they think, oh, if we can know what happened before where we can somehow get ahead of well and you know i study the bronze age collapse yep. and the bronze age collapse is one of the worst cataclysms that humanity has ever gone through and come out of the other side in a different fashion but we did come out the other mm-hmm. side and so there is a hunger to know what can we do how do i prepare um and there's a weird left versus right wing way of approaching these things so there's like the prepper hyper patriarchal way on the right and then on the left, there's a hyper intellectualism um, opening up of how, how we include more people rather than shutting things down. And to see those two things come into conflict with one another, with me kind of in the middle as the historian, is super interesting. And as for why I I just stopped doing it one day. And I remember well, I Well things started opening up again, teaching and maybe. I don't think that busier. was it. It was I was busy throughout. It, I I worked harder throughout this damn pandemic than I've ever worked in my life, except when I did a television show with Discovery Channel. It was insanity. Like I would roll out of bed, I would be on a Zoom meeting and I wouldn't stop. Yeah. I wouldn't even eat. And I had stay to, up all night, right? we all know what it's like to take the Zoom, the iPad in and put it on mute and hope it's on mute while you're peeing because you don't have time <laughs> to, I mean, that's what my uh-huh. days were like. It was insane. So- the greatest fear. Yeah, right. Is it not being on mute? We all know the girl who was like peeing and uh, yes, and then they caught it and people were like, oh my God, you're peeing. I was like, is this me? Um, I don't think it's happening. I always triple check. It's never happened to It's any not happened in class. No, I always any, like, you know. Or um, if I'm like, when we're doing a break and I'm like talking, I'm like, oh, am I muted to make yes. sure I'm not, no one can yes. hear me. It's terrifying these things. But um, I don't know how we did Zoom bathroom breaks, but that's perfect. But I stopped because. And it's funny, I didn't plan to, because I remember one of my last ones is, I'll see you guys in a couple days, I'll be back, it'll be great. And then I was like, I just can't do this right now. I don't feel it's in my my emotional capacity to handle it. And the biggest reason is that I drafted the ideas for the book while I was teaching this class that you were a part of, Mm -hmm. the class about divine kingship and authoritarianism. And once that class ended and I needed to then sit down with the transcript that Amber provided me and write, I couldn't do those two things yeah. at the same time. Too, too much creative, you know. Yeah, it didn't work. Zapping of you. So when I'm drafting, when I'm, when I'm throwing spaghetti at the wall and I'm spitballing and I'm shopping, shop talking at all, mm-hmm. then I can have these conversations with a larger public and it helps me and it's useful. But when I'm writing it and crafting it, 
I can't, it's too much yeah. noise and it, it's too much emotional burden. And yeah. so I had to put it aside. And this is my explanation for why I did that. <laughs> we hope you all enjoy the re-release and some of this content. Um, we'll be releasing it slowly over the summer to help prepare you guys for season two. Um, prepare them. Prepare them. <laughs> Episode number one. Yeah. Divine economic right. Yeah. And divine right as proven by wealth. I meshed them into one because they are two shorter episodes that went well together. These were originally filmed March 25th and 26th of 2020. So take yourself back over a year. Um, this was the start of the pandemic. I mean, I think height. everyone was discussing whether or not to shut down the economy yep. and what the noble sacrifice should be so that the rich people could continue to get rich. Mm -hmm. And I remember posting a cartoon on my pages, which was um, a sacrifice of Mima and Papa yep. <laughs> to, the, to the golden the golden calf god or something, the golden bull. For the economy. Yeah, exactly. So and it, so yeah. connecting this to back to ancient Egypt mm. and how you know similar things were asked of people at all times right sacrificing yourself for the greater good or the that idea that you you prove that you have a god given right to rule mm -hmm. based on whether or not you're wealthy at all so and we you know we say oh we're not polytheistic or oh we wouldn't believe in such silly cultic practices we're modern and yet if somebody is wealthy then we assume that they are somehow blessed mm -hmm. by whatever they the did something right they did something right whatever the circumstances or divinities are that we believe in we um are more liable to trust the rich person over the mm -hmm. poor person to have power over our lives yeah and i think too that the idea that one day it could be us yeah you know that keeps us that that wealth will trickle down into this yeah system but the i guess the point because i use the word divine mm -hmm. divine economic divine right which is right. that money and power are completely intertwined in our lives today and that you the money is the proof that the divine proof that somebody should have the right to rule yeah so you talk about nilometer and the role the nilometer plays and this a nilometer is a mechanism of measuring the height of the nile flood which is a way of measuring how much you can tax, how much grain is going to grow. So it is, and it is a proof, if you like, of how mm -hmm. much benevolence the divinities are giving a certain Pharaoh in a certain year. So that works perfectly. And it's in a temple, right? So that's perfect. Have your thoughts changed at all? And now being in past, now we're in uh, August of 2021, have the thoughts changed or? I think we've seen a lot of Did we sacrifice falls. the economy? We, um, <laughs> we're still talking about this. We're still having the same discussion about whether masks should be worn, about Schools. whether people should take vaccines. And um, it's a little different now, um, but people are still arguing about what their independence is and their rights, rights. and all yeah. of these things. So, um, but we're not discussing opening or closing economies, mm -hmm. but we are discussing where money goes and yeah. Or who's allowed access to certain things now? Oh, if you want to go to the baseball game, you have to now wear a mask at all times. Mm -hmm. Or if you want to go to a Broadway show, you have to be vaccinated. But in terms of divine right to rule, yes, there is less discussion in our political world right now, which in the United States right now is President Biden, and we just had the Afghanistan blow up, right? Um, which is ongoing, apparently, mm -hmm. and the airport is a very difficult place to be in, in Kabul. But there's less of the divine right to rule being manifested 
Not that Biden's a poor man. So do you think it's because we changed, we're now in a different regime? Yeah. March 2020, we had a different president. So yeah. it could be, you know, different, um, you know. I would say that there's a parties. little more flirtation with the benevolence of socialism versus mm-hmm. the benevolence of a trickled down authoritarian richness. But also interesting, we're right, we're in the middle of the recall for yeah. Newsom. And part yeah. of that was because of all these yeah. rights people. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll shutting see how down that, economies and things. So yeah, that plays out. Um, enjoy my thoughts of a year ago, a lot more than a year ago. More than a year ago. Wow. Amazing. So. Hey, you guys. Um, <clears throat> today's been a drama filled extravaganza full of homeschooling. Um, bit of shouting about some software program called, or some app called Pearson Realize, which I really am not a fan of because I can never log in for my son. Um, but we've made it through semi-intact. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm watching the news and, and thinking about um, the stuff I see and, and what's happening and what I'm, I'm thinking about now what I'm seeing is all of this discussion of what reactions and um, uh, measures are too much. What, what, what is it that we're doing right now to um, flatten the curve, to keep the infection from spreading? When is it too much? And, um, and I see people in my uh, country in my government system saying things like, you know, the, the measures we're taking now are, are worse than the virus itself and we're destroying the economy and going into a great depression and this is horrible and all of these things. And so it, um, it makes me think about how economy and power are tied, which is of no surprise to anyone, of course, but then also how power economy is tied to ideology. Because so much of what I've seen in the newspapers and on TV of people saying, oh, you know, I would die for my children's generation and we should give this sacrifice and leaders saying things like, you know, we have to get the economy going again, even if it means the infection will spread, that this is somehow worth it and that they would gladly sacrifice themselves um, or a fellow, some fellow old people to get the economy going again, that, you know, what's 2%, this many people die of the flu and car accidents every year, that kind of thing. Um, When this is packaged, it seems that there's very much an ideological flavor to this. And I use the word ideological purposefully. I'm not using the word religious. This isn't said in a Christian context or an Islamic context. It's said in an ideological context, the context of the um, American state, in my case, um, a patriotism, uh, a desire to wrap oneself in one's flag and sacrifice oneself for, for its people. But um, there is um, an ideology to the economy, is, is what I'm saying. And, and this works, of course, for an Egyptologist. This is very um, Egyptian, this thing. There is a, a true, almost religious flavor to this. And when you think of the dollar bill, you know, and you think of the the leaders who have their images um, on that dollar bill or the earliest coins that you can imagine, um, 
and the earliest coins do seem to have been minted in Egypt, which is interesting. Um, most people say 26th dynasty. Um, well, you can Google it. We'll leave it there. But those coins are ideological. They're images of power. They're associated with divinity. And they're associated with this divine right and protection, this give and take from the ruler to the gods to keep a country or, or place safe. And... Um, and it's an interesting thing to, to think how in Egypt, if temples, religion, money, and power are all joined in the ancient world, um, that they're probably still very much joined in the modern world as well. But we don't, we're not able to tease those things apart and, and see it in that particular way. And it's very interesting from my, to look through the ancient lens from my perspective and to see people having this discussion on one side or another and people saying they would sacrifice themselves for the economy and other people saying um, that this is short-sighted and they never would. But all of it is wrapped up in discussions of, of power and a particular kind of power, a power that is monopolized, a power that is limited to the very few um, and that, that then brings me back to, to Egypt again, a place where the king is acting as the chief priest. He's the one in control of the whole game. And the whole religious game in Egypt, and I'm not calling it a game to denigrate it. Um, let me call it a system instead then. Um, the king is the one in charge of this whole religious system as chief priest. And he's the one that is using these temple institutions politically and economically, not to mention religiously, ideologically, right? That's, that's a given. Um, these temple institutions, they kept people employed. They amazingly created a demand for religious and ritual objects to be purchased by the public who then... Um, wanted these things and used them for social competition and the temple then produced them and filled that demand when people came and bought them. And temples, particularly later period, Egyptian temples, created demands for animal mummies encased in bronze so that you could ask a god or a goddess a particular prayer and, and be given an answer and feel like you're you're making a, a difference in your life in some way. The temple fulfilled that, that um, need for people. Um, it also helped the temple to fund its own institution. But if you look at the king's place in this temple institution, he's there demanding from his people that they see him as the owner, only interlocutor between the heavens and the earth. But he's also demanding that his people see him as the one who is in control of the economy, who has the his not only his finger on the pulse of it, but has absolute control of it. He can marshal all of the labor and the resources. He can get access to the metals, the gold, the greenstone, to the granite in the south, to all of the grain. He's the one that has control over all of this economy. And if you go into an Egyptian temple, if you've ever been privileged enough to do that, you'll see the king is, the wall after wall is covered with the king giving all of these economic resources to the gods and the gods in return giving the king life and health and dominion. And so just one little scene here that I pulled. Um, 
And here, this is um, a Ramesid scene. Yes, it's, it's from a book, but there you go. Get an idea. The god is cut off, but he's there seated upon his throne, and the king is handing commodities to the god. Behind him is, is a female, um, a queen in, in this case. She's holding up a sistrum and, and shaking that and giving the god beautiful music. But though that sistrum would have been made of something extraordinarily precious. But this is a typical scene. And in front of there's a libation vessel. There's, there's all kinds of stuff. This is not an unusual thing to have the king giving goods and then the god in return giving things to the king. Um, I don't know, it'd be like going into a church today and you see um, riches and wealth all over the church. That's for people in Italy or Spain. This is a normal thing to go into a mosque in, in uh, the places where Islam developed and to see precious stones and, and wealth all around. It is absolutely imperative that we tie ideology and religious systems to economic power. And then the leader who is in charge of that economy or sets himself up as being in charge of that economy at the, at the tip of that economic spear. Um, so in the end, it's, um, again, I think it's hard for us to tease this out because we have so much religious pluralism. We're not polytheistic anymore. Um, we pretend not to connect divinity, God, spirituality with stuff, something so um, uh, physical and base as, as a commodity. And yet these two are being combined. Human lives are being ideal, idealized, that's a hard one, <laughs> and, and um, equated to sacrifices that must be made. And the leader is asking his people to make those sacrifices. And so I think of things like, I think of Dynasty One when the Egyptian kings demanded of their elites human sacrifice, sacrificial burial. When the king died, he would demand of his elites that the young and healthy um, be sacrificed for his burial. If you haven't heard about this, it's a very interesting topic and um, you, can, you can do some more Googling there. Or you can imagine Dynasty Four, King Khufu demanding that his people labor to build a 50-story mountain of stone for his burial, just him, just one man in that 50-story mountain of stone. The amount of labor and resources expended economically to produce that, uh, that is an, a symbol of economic ideological power. You can think of Dynasty 12 and expeditions sent out by Samwasarit III or Amenemhat III to strange and faraway lands like Punt, maybe in modern-day Eritrea, Ethiopia, maybe in Yemen, we don't even know, to bring back um, incense trees, roots and all, and millions of balls of incense so that the, the, the elites could, could celebrate in that wealth and so that the king could be seen as the monopolizer of that economic resource. And you can think of expeditions of the of Dynasty 18 or, or thereafter that uh, went out to get, Dynasty 12 too, that went out to get gold, um, stones, uh, green stones like gray wacky or hard stones like granite and quartz. And, and they're the ones that then use these lavish materials to place them all over the, the monumental structures that they're building. Um, this obviously continues. We didn't even get to Ramses the Great, though that was the, the steel I showed you at the beginning. So, um, so the kinds of things I'm thinking about today as I look at our, our landscape and we all shelter at home is um, what is the economic 
price of a human life? What does infection do or potential infection to an economic system? What is the cost of that? Who is hurt by it? Who's not? Um, I know there are many people out there suffering from, from this crisis economically. And the leader then comes in to try to help with some of that crisis. These are, these are very interesting questions. Um, the point for me as an Egyptologist using my lens of authoritarian power is uh, to see how interesting it is when a leader can, can take that economic power and make it all about ideology, religion, belief, um, what should be done, what is morally right to do, and convince people that that's the way it should be. So I'll leave you to discuss. Um, <laughs> these, are, these are big questions. Um, but I um, hope everyone's um, staying healthy. And um, yeah, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. So I've been um, thinking about some of the, the things that I was talking about yesterday with um, this divine right of a leader, divine right of kings, and um, this, this discussion we're still hearing about, about what is, um, what is our economy worth and, uh, and, and how important is it to get things opened up, even if it puts people at risk. And, and I was thinking that, in a way, the, the reason the stakes are so high on this <clears throat> is because when the economy fails, it's very hard to be seen as a legitimate leader in terms of religion or ideology. And again, I think of Egypt, always do, always will. Um, if an Egyptian king wanted to show his power to connect with the gods, he would have perfect Nile inundation numbers. And let, let me explain what, what I mean by that. So there's this thing in ancient Egypt called a Nilometer, which is a, a staircase that goes down to the, the groundwater level, almost always located in a temple site. It is that ideologically important. And the priests would go down the, these steps and they would make a mark on the wall of sandstone or limestone, usually made of sandstone, and put a, an inscription there saying the year of the king and the, the level, it's there in, in actual physical presence, right, what the level is. And then you have an idea of what the economic harvest is going to be over the next year. In other words, how bountiful, how wealthy, how rich that, that king's income is going to be. And more importantly, how that king is interacting with the gods in terms of bringing their favor to the Egyptian people. So it's, it's an amazing thing that they had these nilometers at all, that the economy and the harvest were so connected with these temple spaces, or maybe it's not. And it's um, very interesting that that these things occurred in such a ritually charged fashion. And then, of course, the, the conclusion of all of this is that the kings who had good Nile numbers did it better, did all of it better, were better chief priests in the temple, did the rituals better, were good kings, good leaders in the eyes of the gods, 
not bad leaders. And that is why I think there is so much consternation uh, in the media in the United States, um, in, in other places around the world, um, China too, about this balance between economy, economic wealth on the one hand, and uh, people's lives on the other. Because a leader knows that without the economy, his leadership will be questioned. It will be ultimately questioned ideologically. Is that leader able to create the mythology, the fiction, the perfection of everything going right? So yeah, if it makes me think, and I just started working on my class um, uh, for UCLA, this class about divine kingship and the ideology of rule and trying to make the past relevant to today, um, that if you become vulnerable as a leader, you're, you're, something happens, um, you've been invaded, or there's an environmental collapse, or a giant pandemic sweeps into your, your space, <laughs> for instance. Um, if you become vulnerable, ideology is one of the best things that you can use as a leader to try to keep everything glued together but it also is the thing that that can topple you so it's a really tricky thing that you have to play here ideology is um something that you can't prove or disprove um and that includes religious ideology or patriotic state ideology just it is um it's something that is out there in the open and yet you can easily hide it um you can conceal it in a way uh you don't look at the dollar bill and think of it is an ideological document um, full of a mythology of value that is in a piece of paper that we that is only there because our rulers give it that value and we all agree to it. Um, there is ideology all around us and we don't necessarily see it. It's um, ideology, whether religious ideology or state ideology, is a thing that can get people to do what is not necessarily in their own best interest very useful thing for a leader to use to, to get people to um, bow to his, to his interests. So in ancient Egypt, divine kingship, it used this ideology in all kinds of ways as a, a linchpin to hold together politics, economics, military systems, to, to bring that all together and a kind of glue, a kind of linchpin, a, a release valve in a way, so that if you get invaded and you have a military problem or there's a pandemic environmentally or um, the economy falters, something's happening politically, there's a coup, I don't, something happens that's difficult. The ideology can be the thing that helps people get through from one step to the next, helps people have continuity. Um, helps a state understand what it is or a city to fight, you know, like New York is going through such trouble right now. And you, you see, um, uh, governor Cuomo up there saying, you know, New Yorkers have done this before New Yorkers are going to get through. And there's an ideology of the strength of New York, um, hardened by nine 11, but pre-existing, um, nine 11 and, and the fall of the twin towers. So this, this ideology is, is something that, that helps us, um, get through as a people, but when used by a leader, can often be used as a means of cheating the balance sheet, of, of creating a situation that isn't necessarily there. Um, for instance, um, 
let's say, and we are going through this horrific economic collapse right now, a strange um, collapse brought on by a pandemic and everyone needing to shelter in place. But if you can convince people ideologically that that maybe there's there are people to blame for this, using ideology of statehood, even ethnicity, who is American and who is not, who is Chinese and who is not, who is um, Italian and who is not. And you as a leader could say, I didn't create this problem. It has nothing to do with me. This problem was brought in from the outside. This is something that somebody else did. You may look at that on the surface and be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a very interesting political point because, you know, we didn't create this virus and it's brought in by others. And so the leader is not to blame. But it's still ideological because it is based on a fiction of who belongs and who doesn't. A fiction of who belongs in the state and who doesn't belong in the state. A fiction of, of inclusiveness for some and exclusion for others. So by naming the pandemic or the virus a certain thing, and I was just reading a very interesting article about the flu of 1918 called, as many of you may know, the Spanish flu interesting. Hmm. <laughs> it's like we have been here before, right? That it has to come from someplace else. So then the leader who's dealing with all of the fallout from this can say, hey, you know, it came from someplace else. This is not my problem. It's not my thing. I, I didn't have anything to do with this. It is the Spanish flu. And you can, um, I'll, I'll post the article. It's, it's pretty interesting that the Spanish were not too thrilled with having this um, flu called the Spanish flu. And interestingly, the first documented case of this flu by epidemiologists was not in Spain, but I think in the United States. I'll have to check that point and others who are, are watching this can correct me there too. Um, so, you know, these ideas who of, of marking particular people as belonging to your group or not, um, this is also a very clever ideological tool. So as I focus on ideology, optics, propaganda in my class about ancient Egypt and the divine right of kings and what a good leader is is supposed to have at his disposal. I want all of you to look in your modern world around you, whatever state you're in, wherever you find yourself, um, start looking for those hidden ideologies that we think of as facts or data, but when they're presented in certain ways are, are much, much more and something that uh, leaders do to maintain power, to stay in power, and to get people to um, to allow that power to continue. So, um, interesting stuff, interesting questions. Um, let me know what you're thinking about it all, and um, I'll post this on the on the various social medias. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review and help raise our profile and let others know about it. Send your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. You can find the video version of the show on my YouTube page and full show notes will be posted in the podcast section of my website, karakuni.squarespace.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books, upcoming lectures, and you can subscribe to my newsletter. 
You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. See you next time on Afterlives with Karakuni.